morning, church. The scripture reading this morning comes from Habakkuk, chapter 3. If you'd like to use the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, you can find the passage on page 786. Habakkuk, chapter 3, in its entirety. And while you're turning there, I want to make a quick note. There's a word that you might have seen in the Psalms. It's Selah, or Selah. And Scholars don't really know what it means, but a lot of them think it's a musical notation, and we know that this chapter was meant to be sung. Some people read it, but today I'm going to try and actually live, um, read out or act out, not act out, but to let the meaning of it kind of flow through my reading, which is to pause and to reflect. So if you hear me pause, that's because I'm trying to reflect the meaning of sila. Habakkuk chapter 3. Would you please rise for this reading of God's holy and inerrant word. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shagainoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. God came from Timon, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hand on high. The sun and mood stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. 
Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the field, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for this word that has just been read to us. And we are now praying for your Holy Spirit to accompany the preaching of that very word. That the Holy Spirit might minister mightily and deeply in every heart here for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, church, in the last few weeks, we have been in a mini-series in the Old Testament book of Habakkuk that has been focused on the theme of theodicy. We've been trying to understand how God can be a just God and an all-good God and an all-powerful God despite the persistence of evil and injustice in this world. How do you keep the faith while at the same time honestly wrestling with the problem of evil? Because to be honest, that, that's been a problem that has led so many to abandon the faith. And so how are we then going to respond? How are we going to deal with the problem of evil and injustice? That, my friends, has been the questions we've been asking throughout this entire series. Now, it's important to, though, recognize the particular problem of evil that's being posed here in Habakkuk. Because what we're not dealing with, and this is important to observe, we're not dealing with the typical question of why do bad things happen to good people. I think that's what most people are trying to understand. Why do good people, why do the innocent experience so much suffering and injustice? How is that fair? How is that right? That's typical of what people are asking when it comes to the problem of evil. But notice how Habakkuk is not posing that question. He's not under the impression that some people, especially God's people, are somehow good and innocent as if they don't deserve punishment for sin, as, they don't, as if they don't deserve punishment or chastisement for disobedience. No, he actually starts off in the book in chapter 1 complaining about how God's people under the reign of these wicked kings of Judah, how they are doing evil and seemingly unpunished. And how long, oh Lord, that's what he's asking, how long are they going to get away with it? What Habakkuk is wrestling with is, is why enough bad things don't happen to bad people. Well, why are they getting away with their wickedness? Why do evildoers prosper? That's what he wants to know. And God's answer, found in the second half of chapter 1, 
Well, it only makes matters worse because God's answer to the wickedness among his own people is to punish them through the military triumph of an even more wicked people. He says the Babylonians are coming and they're coming to destroy. They're going to serve as instruments of God's just judgment. Now, as we saw last week in chapter 2, the Lord assures Habakkuk of Babylon's future judgment. That they're going to get it as well. And so he's calling Habakkuk to live by faith and not by sight. And and here, what we find in chapter 3 is Habakkuk's response to that. His concerns about the wicked prospering, about justice failing, that has been addressed. God has made it clear that his perfect justice will be served out in the end. But now, in our chapter... Habakkuk has to deal with evil and injustice really more on a personal level. You remember, he's being told that devastation and destruction is coming for him, for his people, and for the city that he loves. So, so while in the beginning of the book he was asking these broader level philosophical questions about the, the general problem of evil, but by the end of the book... You see here that he has to deal with evil and injustice on a very personal level as one who is going to have to suffer through the experience of defeat and deportation into Babylonian exile. He knows this is coming. He knows he's going to have to go through it. And now he's trying to figure out how is he personally going to deal with it. And friends, I, I, I think this, this process applies to each of us. I think it's very important to to address all of those philosophical questions about the problem of evil. And if you have those philosophical, intellectual, theoretical questions, ask it. This is a place where we want to explore those things and to figure those things out as best as we can with the scriptures. But what, friends, we really need to, to wrestle with, what we really need to deal with is the personal question, the personal experience of evil. I want us to have a very robust theodicy. I want us to wrestle with difficult questions. That's important, but what's more important is how are you going to deal with personal encounters with evil, especially when evildoers seem to prosper at your expense? What are you going to do? How are you going to respond when that person betrays your friendship, breaks your trust, and goes on thinking that they did nothing wrong? And they seem to feel no remorse. How are you going to respond when that coworker crosses ethical lines, throws you under the bus, and then goes on to enjoy career advancements without any seeming repercussions? How are you going to respond when your abuser exploits your trust, goes and makes you feel like you're at fault, and then goes on unpunished? while you suffer in silence. Now, I'm sure being told that that one day God is coming, one day God is going to bring perfect justice, that he is going to come and right every single wrong, he's going to make every sad thing come untrue. Yes, I know on, on, on one level that is going to be very helpful. That is something you really need to hear. That is going to help you on this philosophical level of dealing with the problem of evil, but on a personal level. What are you going to do with your pain right now? It's a comfort to know that one day he's going to set all things right. But how do you respond to the loss and to the suffering that you're experiencing right now in the present? 
So when we see Habakkuk in chapter 1, we see this great example of, of, of bringing these complaints about the problem of evil and bringing them to God. We saw that that's something we should be doing. We should bring these complaints to God in the form of prayer. Habakkuk goes to God with a prayer of complaint, also known as a prayer of lament. He goes to God with his complaints. But, you know, as, you walk, as your walk with the Lord deepens, as your walk with the Lord matures, the whole hope here is that those prayers of lamentable complaint will eventually transform into prayers of enduring faith. That's what maturity does. And so what we see here is we see this, this process of, of maturing your faith happening to Habakkuk right before our eyes. We see his prayer life mature as we enter into chapter 3. You're going to notice that chapter 3 takes the form of a prayer that's been set to music. So this is really a, a psalm here. This is a song to be sung. And in this song, we're going to come across three exhortations. First, we are to remember the powerful displays of God's past judgment. Second, we are to rest in the long view of God's sure justice. And third, we are to rejoice in the all-sufficiency of God's silent presence. Those are the three exhortations we can draw out of this song. And if you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. You'll see an outline listing all three. So as we, as we begin chapter 3, notice with me how in verse 1, this is described as Habakkuk's prayer, a prayer according to Shigi Onoth. Now, that's likely a musical term referring to the tune that you would use when you're singing out this prayer. So, so that, what this then therefore means for us is that we're not just reading a prophet's personal journal. Like we're not just you know, you know, reading his own private meditations as he's personally just dealing with the problem of evil. No, this prayer was intended to actually be taught and sung corporately within temple worship. And so that means the people of God are meant to learn this song, to internalize it, to make it your own, your own prayer before the Lord. So, so this is very applicable, very helpful for us. So what this means is that when you find yourself in Habakkuk's shoes, when you find yourself attacked, when you're feeling oppressed, when your life is coming undone just like Habakkuk, remember, remember the powerful displays of God's past judgment. That's our first point here. That's what Habakkuk does to bolster up his faith. He brings to remembrance the Lord's former deeds of deliverance. In chapter 2, as we saw last week, the Lord already promised to one day come and to punish Israel's enemies. He's going to come and he's going to topple the Babylonians. So what you see most of Habakkuk's song doing is in this song, he's building off of what he heard in chapter 2. And this song is filled with stanzas, recollecting the many times that God has done just that. Where when he has intervened in human history, he has come to fight for his people, to deliver them from their enemies. Because he has, he has heard all the stories about the Lord, and he is in awe. He is left in awe as he recounts the stories. 
So look at verse 2. He says, I, I have heard the reports of you. I have heard the stories. And your work, O Lord, do I fear. Habakkuk is essentially saying, Lord, Lord, when I look back and I think back to all of those famous stories of you delivering your people from invading nations or you delivering them from, from enslaving oppressors, I stand in awesome wonder, in holy reverence, in proper fear of you and of your mighty works. And if you survey the following verses, you can tell all the various biblical references that he has in mind. For example, when he describes the Lord in verse 3 as marching from Taman and from Mount Paran, those locations are in the region of the Sinai Peninsula where Israel took refuge after they had crossed the Red Sea, after the Lord had defeated all of their Egyptian overlords. So that that is the time in Israel's history when the Lord began to visibly manifest his presence, manifest his power before them through the Red Sea, through the pillars of cloud and fire, through lightning and thunder, through the shaking of the earth at Mount Sinai. I mean, that's when God really began to visibly and tangibly show up. And, and that fits all of these these descriptions that Habakkuk has of God in the verses here in chapter 3. And not only does he reference God's defeat of Egypt, Habakkuk alludes to how God also led them in battle as they settled the promised land. So, for example, the mention there in verse 11 of the sun and moon standing still in their place, well, that's an obvious reference to the victory that the Lord delivered over to Joshua, uh, defeating the Amorites. Or in verse 7, there's mention of Kushan or Midian. That those are some of the nations that the Lord drove out on behalf of his people. And he did that all by these mighty displays of power, these mighty deeds of deliverance. And the whole point here, friends, is that as Habakkuk remembers the Lord's past deeds of deliverance, what he's doing, especially in verse 2, is he's pleading for God to revive those works again, to do it again, especially in his day. Look back at verse 2. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. You see, when he says in the midst of the years, in the middle of the years, the prophet is really seeing himself as living between two key significant points in history. Context would suggest that what he sees himself is he sees himself standing between the Exodus and this day of judgment that the Lord has promised in chapter 2. These are, these are the years. These are these key moments. And he's asking God to repeat the same deeds of deliverance that he's done throughout Israel's history. Do it now. Do it in our day. That, that's how if you have the NIV, that's why you have the NIV in front of you. The NIV translates this as, Repeat them in our day. Repeat these works in our day, in our time. Make them known. Habakkuk is praying and hoping for God to intervene today through another visible manifestation of his mighty power. Please, Lord, don't wait for that future day for it to happen. Do it now. Today, oh Lord, would you please inflict judgment on these Babylonians? Would you please stay off their coming invasion? That's what he's praying. He knows God's people have sinned. He knows they deserve holy wrath. They deserve justice. But he pleads for mercy. In wrath, remember mercy, he prays. 
Habakkuk is praying for the possibility, however remote, that God would mercifully pull off in their day another miraculous defeat, this time over the Babylonians. Just as he did with the Egyptians, with the Canaanites, with the Assyrians, with the Midianites. He, he did it with so many other nations. Lord, please revive your mighty works. Repeat it. Do it again in our day, O oh Lord. That's how he's starting off his prayer. So what can we learn, church? Well, what can we learn from this that, that would apply to our prayer lives? Now, what this means, I believe, is that when you're faced with evil and injustice in your own experience, remember. Remember that God is not powerless. Remember that God has and God will put a stop to evil. He will right all the wrongs. He will establish his perfect justice. But until that day comes, as you personally struggle with the, in the face of evil, just know that, that there, is, there is an appropriate place for praying down judgment on evildoers. There is a type of prayer in Scripture known as the imprecatory prayer, or there's also the imprecatory psalm. The imprecatory prayer comes out really of this posture of lament where you are crying out to God in the face of injustice, in the face of suffering, and you're essentially, you're praying down a curse upon God's enemies. Do you see how Habakkuk is doing that? Essentially, he's praying that down, hoping that God would bring down a curse, bring down judgment upon the Babylonians, not in the future, but right now. I, I know it sounds strange to be praying that way. It, it sounds inappropriate to, to even vocalize that, which is why it's so jarring whenever you come across an imprecatory prayer when you're reading Scripture. Consider Consider Psalm 139, for example. It's this beautiful psalm that, that magnifies God for his, his omniscience and his omnipresence. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? And it goes on to speak of how God formed us intimately. And he knows us personally. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, I, I remember when I, the first time I read Psalm 139 to my daughter, I, I was so excited to introduce her to this psalm and to this, all this beautiful language describing a relationship with God as, as being so precious and, and so personal. And then I kept reading into Psalm, in, into psalm 139, verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. And I was like, whoa, okay, that, that, that escalated quickly. <laughs> that, that went in a different direction than I was expecting. And that's an imprecatory prayer. It's inspired scripture, so it can't be wrong to pray that. There is a place for praying that God would intervene to stay the hand of the wicked to bring judgment upon them, to even bring about their demise if necessary. But of course, friends, we've got to be careful. 
We have got to be careful that our prayers, especially if it's an imprecatory prayer, that it must not be motivated by personal spite or revenge. Because remember, we are still commanded to love our enemies. But loving your enemy should never come at the expense of seeking and expecting divine justice to take place. So on one hand, an imprecatory prayer asking God to punish the wicked is not necessarily unloving. Because that is how Old Testament psalmists and Old Testament prophets prayed. But as New Testament believers on this side of the cross, it is imperative that we pray for their repentance to be granted for repentance to be granted to the wicked before we go on and pray for curses to fall upon them. So yes, you can pray for their punishment, but pray first for them to trust in Christ as the one who took their punishment upon himself as he died on the cross. Because, you know, as Christians, as Christians, that is how we know divine justice has been satisfied in our case. For us, that's our only hope. So we must extend that hope for others as well, even, even our oppressors. So an imprecatory prayer for, let me give you an example, for, for a wicked, oppressive dictator. If you're, if, if you're praying an imprecatory prayer for this dictator, it can sound something like this. Oh Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done. Please convert this man in Christ. But, but if he's not going to repent, then please remove him from power. Bring about an early demise, if necessary, O oh Lord. That sounds a little nicer than saying, oh, would you slay the wicked, right? I mean, but that's essentially the same, the same thing you're communicating to the Lord. And so, so that's an example, and that could be applied even more on a personal level. Not just to some world leader, but, but to even that personal oppressor or abuser in your life. But in the end, friends, a true imprecatory prayer is still going to trust in the Lord's sovereign will and his good timing. So even if God never intervenes in the very moment, and if he doesn't just stop the wicked in their tracks, we can still rest assured that no one will ever escape divine judgment. You can always rest in the long view of God's sure justice. That's our second exhortation in our text. You actually see Habakkuk go through this maturation process by the end of chapter 3. Because by verse 16, he, he relinquishes his plea for God to miraculously intervene. And he now comes to accept the coming judgment at the hands of the Babylonians. As a song, if this you know, is to be sung as a song, then you can imagine verse 16 as the start of a bridge within the song, where perhaps maybe there's a key change, maybe a tempo change. In the previous stanzas, he's been singing about the visible manifestations of God's power, of his judgment upon all of their enemies, but now the key changes. And in this bridge, you hear him accepting God's warning that judgment is coming against them in the form of the Babylonian exile. So listen to verse 16 again. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people 
who invade us. So Habakkuk accepts that the Babylonians are going to invade, and, he, and he's just going to have to quietly wait for that day of trouble that was prophesied in chapter 2 to finally come upon the invaders. It won't happen now. He accepts that. That doesn't come easy. And he says here that he's, he's trembling. He's shaking to his bones. He is truly afraid. And yet at the same time, he truly believes. See, friends, biblical faith, Biblical faith calls for a long view of God's justice. You can hope and you can pray for his justice to be carried out in your lifetime, before your very eyes, but faith instructs you to always take a long view. Look look back at what God said in in chapter 2, verse 3. Look at chapter 2, verse 3, where he promised a day of judgment for his enemies. He says, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So you can be assured that God's justice will ultimately prevail over your oppressors. But perhaps not in your lifetime. You see, the promise of perfect justice is like a seed planted. It very well may lie under the dirt until we lie there as well. And then... Only then will it spring up one day to the glory of God and to the vindication of his righteousness. Biblical faith takes all of that into view. Now this, this struggle of faith, the struggle of faith to quietly wait for perfect justice to spring up, it continues on throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament, expressed in letters like 2 Peter. In 2 Peter, the apostle is responding to scoffers who question the delay of divine judgment, who, who scoff um, uh, uh, at uh, this idea of just waiting quietly for the Lord to return and to establish perfect justice on earth. Where is your God? They mock. Where is this perfect justice you're waiting for? And so Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, Verses 8 to 9, let me read it. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So yes, From man's perspective, the ongoing delay of perfect justice seems just way too long. It seems like it's been a thousand years. But from God's perspective, it's only one day. Only one day before the judge arrives in town. So when you take that long view, when you take God's view, you can better endure the wait. And don't lose sight of what Peter says about God's patience. What what we're tempted to interpret as slowness on God's part, Peter says, should rather be understood as patience on his part. Patient for more sinners to reach repentance. So again, friends, be careful not to pray so intently for your oppressor's judgment that you fail to pray for their repentance. Pray for repentance as you are praying for God's justice to be done on this earth. Around this time last year, I remember reading the news 
about this 100-year-old man on trial in Germany. He was accused of assisting in the murder of 3,518 people because 76 years earlier, as a 24-year-old man, he served as an SS guard in a Nazi concentration camp where 3,518 prisoners of war were either shot or gassed to death. And this past June, the verdict finally came down and he was found guilty. It was a long time coming. I'm sure the family and friends of all those, those victims, they had to patiently wait 76 years, but justice was eventually served. The long arm of the law finally prevailed. And so friends, take, take comfort in this. Take comfort in the fact that human justice is so doggedly persistent. If human justice is willing to press on and to persevere for three quarters of a century to track down a frail, wheelchair-bound centenarian just in order to keep him accountable for the evil that he perpetrated when he was a young man, if human justice is that patient and that persistent, then how much more divine justice? How much more can you be sure that divine justice will never fail you, that it will surely come? That, my friends, is the long view of God's sure justice. But as we said earlier, taking that long view, yes, it might help you philosophically endure the problem of evil, but psychologically, on a personal level, it's still extremely difficult to wait. But this is the direction that mature faith goes. No notice how this bridge in Habakkuk's song continues on in verses 17 to 19. The earlier he was singing about God's visible power on display in lightning and thunder, earthquakes, all the like. But now, now the key changes. The tempo picks up, and he's singing about his joy and his satisfaction in God, even when the Lord's presence and power are no longer visible, even when all has gone silent. But that's how you know. That's how you know when your faith has matured. When you can rejoice in the Lord, not just when his presence and his power are unmistakable and indisputable, but especially, especially when they seem absent. Can you rejoice in the all-sufficiency of God's silent presence? This is our third and final exhortation. To rejoice in the all-sufficiency of God's silent presence. Let's listen again to Habakkuk's declaration of faith, starting here in, in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the oil olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. The prophet's point is that even though all outward signs point to more suffering and more loss, Yet he will rejoice in the Lord. 
Though my flesh and my heart may fail, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This, my friends, is what it means to live by faith and not by sight. It's surprising, really, if you think about it, how quick Habakkuk is able to shift from terror in verse 16, deprivation in verse 17, to now suddenly joy and satisfaction in verses 18 and 19. I mean, that's just four verses there, from verses 16 to 19. And the prophet goes from trembling at the thought of invasion and all the loss that it's going to bring, to rejoicing in God, finding strength in him alone. I mean, how is that possible? How, how, how is that possible? What, what explains that sudden shift within the prophet? Well, notice. Notice how Habakkuk is no longer putting his hope and joy in what he sees, but in what he hears. What he sees are poor circumstances, but what he hears are rich promises. What he sees is scarcity and want, but what he hears is that the Lord can be your strength when all else fails. But friends, this is what it means to live by faith. You know, it's, it's natural. It comes natural to everyone to rejoice when the harvest is good, when the fig tree is flourishing, when the herd is healthy and the stalls are full. Everybody rejoices in those circumstances. That doesn't require faith. The real question is whether you're still going to rejoice when the harvest is poor, when the circumstances are hard, when the opportunities are scarce. Though the marriage should not blossom with romance, nor life plans come to fruition, Though your efforts yield only loss and disappointment and your resources are cut off and there be no money in your wallet, will you still take joy in the God of your salvation? Will he still be your strength when all else fails? That's the real test. The real test of faith. And this is where Habakkuk serves as an inspiration for us. Because in hope against hope, he put his trust in the Lord. All around, it seemed like evil reigned and the wicked would prosper. There was no visible sign of hope, no tangible evidence for him to hold on to. And yet somehow, somehow he kept his faith. Because the righteous shall live by faith. And we're not just talking about some, some sort of nebulous faith and the general idea that God just is going to work all things for good, that he can just take all the hurt and all the pain in your life, and he, he's going to make something beautiful out of that. I mean, to be honest, to be honest, you can believe that without truly knowing Christ. Now, we're talking about living by faith, specifically in the gospel. The righteous shall live by faith, in the good news that God took the sin, suffering, and sadness in the world, put it on the back of his son, and he nailed all of that to the cross. God used the most sorrowful event in human history to bring about the greatest joy for mankind. Our sinless Savior died. And yet on the third day, he rose again, proving that joy is greater than sadness, that love is greater than hate. And now this kind of joy and this kind of love is available to anyone, to anyone who receives Jesus by faith. And so if, if you have yet to do that, if you have yet to put your trust in Christ, my friend, today, today is the day for you to do that. 
today is the day for you to open up your heart and to receive Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord. As the one who, who took your sins, who took your sufferings, who took your sadness and put it upon himself. But let me tell you, I'm going to be honest with you. If you put your hope in Christ, it does not mean that the problem of evil suddenly just goes away. You'll still find yourself from time to time the victim of injustice or the target of abuse. Becoming a Christian won't make you immune to the pain of injustice or the sorrow of loss or the bitterness of injustice. So what's then the point? What's the point of all of it then? Well, the point, of course, is that you'll still have Christ. You'll have Christ. You'll have a Savior who experienced the ultimate injustice and the greatest abuse at the hands of sinful man. You'll have a friend who experienced the ultimate loss of all goodness and all grace so that you could live forever in the goodness of God and in the sufficiency of his grace. Christ was forsaken, and he cried out to God only to hear silence so that you will never be forsaken, so that you can be sure that even in the silence that you experience, you'll still find the presence of God. That's the point. That's the point of trusting in Christ. That's how you can live by faith. Let me pray. Father, we, we thank you for this word that we, we need to hear because it's, it's real. This is what real life is. It's going to be f- experiencing loss, experiencing disappointment, experiencing injustice, experiencing betrayal, experiencing pain and hurt. So, Lord, we need a faith that goes beyond just what we see in our circumstances. But we need a faith that can hear your word, that can truly believe, to truly believe that ultimately your son has taken upon all of that for us who believe, that he has taken all the injustice, taken all of the evil, taken all of that upon himself on the cross. And so we pray for more and more people in our lives, even those who are our enemies. We pray that they will also find Christ as Redeemer and Lord. But ultimately, Lord, we know that Christ is returning. Christ will come back, not to redeem, but to judge and to make a new earth where perfect justice will reign. So we long for that day, but until that day, Help us to live by faith and not by sight. In your name we pray, amen.